Well, hello. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we'll begin our look at uh, the works of Harriet Beecher Stowe. And um, this is going to take us a little bit of time because her novels are, are pretty long. Um, we're going to start, obviously, with Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which will be about five episodes. Then we're going to look at The Minister's Wooing, which was published in, I think, is that post-war? No, in 1859, which is uh, a romance story of sorts, but it's about New England um, at the time of the American Revolution. Then we have Old Town Folks, which I know nothing about. So this is going to be fun because I've recently been doing a lot of works like the Mark Twain stuff, um, like the slave narratives, things I've done before. Um, works I've looked at and, and studied before. Um, now, of course, like everyone else, I know the basic idea of Uncle Tom's Cabin, know its historical significance, but I never actually read it. And, and I think that's probably a common experience people have. So um, um, I do think it's, it's worth checking out. It's something I've been meaning to do for a while. And while we're here, let's look at um, these other two works by Harry Peter Stone, see what we can find of interest in them. So I'm pretty excited. It's, it's always fun to start reading new novels. I really love, like, I think this format thrives best in, in the novel form where we, we sit down with for like four or five episodes and really dig into one novel, um, one long work. Some of my favorite series in this podcast do exactly that. Um, even if they're not all by one author, like the Harlem Renaissance series, but sometimes like when we did... Um, Sinclair Lewis, I think that was a lot of fun, too. Just getting in over a couple weeks to really get your head around a set of characters, a situation, a theme, um, and and just really allowing ourselves to dig in to the, you know, the American literature with with some of its most famous works. Why not? Or even less less famous works, I guess. I don't think many people read Old Town Folks. As far as I know, there's not even an audiobook of it. Uh, Minister's Wooing, I think there is something on Audible. Uncle Top's Cabin, of course. Um, I'll be able to get an audiobook. There might be something on LibriVox for old town folks, but um, we'll, we'll see. Um, anyways, um, my initial thoughts about Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, now, obviously, I've only read the first hundred pages of it or so, but I think this is a solid work of, of literature. I think the cliches about it are, are probably true. Um, there is um, kind of a sentiment, uh, a sentimentalization of it, of, of the characters and of the stories. And, and there's a lack of realism, I think, is, which is a bit contradictory because obviously Harriet Beecher Stowe is trying to tell us about the reality of slavery. And she does, like in the sense of the plot. The plot is drawn from life. The plot is real enough. Or at least the basic tension and motivations of the characters is real enough. But... Obviously, the, like the dialogue, the settings, the characterization of people is exaggerated um, to elicit an emotional response. And building off of the like the themes of sentimental literature that were popular at the time, so I don't want to fault um, Stowe for doing that. She's clearly writing in the in the genre of the time, and I think even in the slave narratives, you saw evidence of that in some of the approach, like how Harry Jacobs talks, you know, talks about her, 
her master as Flint, right? Mr. Flint, her choice of names, right? And her choice of like appealing to like pathos, appealing to emotion, which she always did in, especially in the early part of that book, but even later, appealing to virtues of motherhood and things like that, and, and things like that are, are just drawn from the literature of the time. Um, now, yeah, the, the, the ice island scene where, sh- where Eliza is jumping across the river, holding this baby, jump, you know, jumping from rock, to, or not rock, from ice sheet to ice sheet. It's, it's like out of some cartoon. That does not, it does pull you out a little bit, but, you know, it does express her, her willingness to sacrifice. It does help build her character. So as long as you don't try to take these characters too realistically, um, so it's somewhere between like a realistic account, like what we got in the slave narratives and maybe like a Quentin Tarantino view of like slavery. Because of course in, in him, like in Django Unchained, you have these really exaggerated settings where like this wrestling stuff which didn't really happen the characters are over the top exaggerated but he's not going for sentiment there you do have exaggerated characters like um Haley great example of this our slave trader that we're introduced in the first chapter is just despicable in every way she adds on that he's 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 vulgar he's uncouth he's cowardly manipulative. He's everything bad. There's like no nuance in his character. Mr. Shelby is is compromised by debt, um, but, you know, ultimately is a defender of slavery. So he's not a good character either. He's a little more, I guess, gray, if you want to think of it that way. But he, clearly Stowe is not on his side either. The women tend to be anti-slavery and the men aren't. I mean, that's a trope I've noticed in the first 100 pages of this book. I don't know if it continues through the rest, but how many times? I think there's three times in just the first 100 pages where we have a scene where a man is doing something that conforms with the slaveholders' culture of the South at the time, whether it's selling people to to pay off debts like Shelby is doing, or whether it's um, voting for a Fugitive Slave Act. Um, whatever it is, it's the it's condemned by a woman in the whole, in in the household, right? Um, even with Eliza and her husband George, she Eliza becomes the the voice of reason, the voice of family, of moderation, calling for like higher values. Her own running away, her her sacrifice, her risk taking is done for something higher. Not for her own desires. She doesn't run for herself. She runs because of her son. Um, so there's a there's a, a whole gender thing, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, aspect of the of the book that's really actually quite important, I think, to Stowe's whole approach here. She her audience. I don't know if her audience is women. I, I'm thinking of that book, which I never actually read, called. Um, the Feminization of American Culture. It's by a literary theorist. I don't think she's a historian named Anne Douglas. And I, I think I may have checked out this book, but I don't think I've read it. Um, but my understanding of the argument is it's that uh, that kind of as religion faded in America, American culture um, became more influenced by, by educated women like women like Stowe, right? 
but they were able to influence culture. They weren't like in, in the clergy too. So overall, these these sectors, especially the clergy, kind of fell from political formal political power, but they filled it in with cultural power, right? And women writers were a big aspect of that. So, um, so they filled in because they it's a separate sphere is ideology. So they couldn't be like they couldn't fill in the role of men in the stories. And they didn't write like male novels. They wrote novels that conformed with the ideology of the time. And that meant sentimental values, right? Um, and with all the melodrama and consumerism and things like that, that we um, get in it. So it's, it's a book maybe I need to read the more I want to think about literature. Because someday I, I think I want to do a, a series of podcasts really s- surveying like American literature, a more scripted kind of approach where I'll survey American literature like a decade at a time maybe, you know, and, and look at its big themes and how they connect to the historical events and, and times of the day. And that this would be an important book to read when I I, I look at it. But, but Stowe's the kind of person they're talking about, and this is the kind of book they're talking about. So as, as serious as the theme is, you know, you're, I don't think you're meant to take these characters entirely seriously. I don't think that's really what um, Stowe is trying to do. I think you'd be mistaken to try to either embrace or criticize this book as based on its accuracy as a, as a story of slavery, right? It's trying to pull the heartstrings. It's trying to uh, speak to people in terms of, of these values of, of, you know, a family in particular. Uh, and of course, it's women who must speak the story of family. Um, you know, it must be the women's characters who defend the family from the slave traders. So um, anyways, uh, let's, if you haven't read Uncle Tom's Cabin, I think it's worthy to, to kind of do some to summary of this. Um, our first chapter, um, we're only going to look at nine chapters today, so it'll be kind of quick, I think. Um, in the first chapter, we, first of all, we're setting Kentucky, so that is important for uh, Eliza's escape and, and the whole threat of going being sold down the river. Um, so we're in a place of America in which slavery is less important and slaveholders would often sell slaves to the south because that's where there was more of a market for it and prices were higher and things like that. So our, our household here, Shel- the Shelby household, which has several slaves, uh, husband and wife. There's a kid named George, which is kind of interesting because little George, and then there's uh, Elias's husband from another plantation, also called George. And I don't know if their name was the same on purpose. I, I doubt that it's not on purpose. But um, we have one who's going to grow up relatively privileged and free, and another one who lived his whole life in slavery and has to fight for that freedom and, and has to risk himself for his freedom. Um, but anyways, we have uh, the, the opening scene is actually quite engaging and it pulls you into the book quite well. Is we have Shelby and Haley, the slave trader, talking to each other. And basically Haley is there to take advantage of Shelby's debt. Um, so he's a bad guy. He's worse. Shelby's a slaveholder, but, but, but Haley is worse in every way. He's without any redeeming features. It's, it's easy to see. He's, first, first of all, he's very vulgar. So again, if your audience is... is the readers of sentimental literature, this is the kind of guy that just in the way he speaks, you're warned that this guy is a bad, this guy's a, not a good guy. Um, 
And he's basically using Shelby's debt to try to buy some slaves so that he knows he's going to be able to get a more commanding price for her. Now, he wants Eliza. He wants, because she's mulatto. She's, uh, you know, she, the hint is that she wants, he wants to sell her as a concubine for some master. They resist that, but ultimately he agrees to sell Uncle Tom, who is Christian and devoted. He's the devoted. I mean, obviously the term Uncle Tom comes from this book. Uh, I think his characterization is a little more complex later in the book. He says, I understand it. But he is presented here, at least in Shelby's mind, as the good slave. Um, So they sell him. And then Haley's like, well, that's not going to pay off your debts. So he agrees to sell Eliza's um, son, Harry. Now, now, in good sentimental literature uh, uh, fashion, we have Eliza, who, who's like around the corner, hears, oh, there's a slave trader here. Who's going to be sold? Is it going to be my son? And she starts to panic and get emotional about this. And she talks to Mrs. Shelby, and Mrs. Shelby assures her that, oh, you won't be sold. You know, Mr. Shelby would never break up your family or things like that. So right away we are going to get a story about that's going to be the main threat. It's the threat to family, right? So again, it's women again and again, whether it's Mrs. Shelby or Eliza or um, later on in the book, the, the senator's wife, Mrs. Bird, defending the virtues of family and, and attacking slavery through a defense of the family. Um, then, okay, so in chapter two, uh, we learn more about Eliza's life. Uh, so we, we, there's a lot of flipping back between like the whites and the blacks in these chapters, like chapter to chapter, or sometimes within one chapter. Uh, she does that quite a lot, showing these worlds as being really intimately connected and integrated, and our novel is going to be integrated, we're told, between these two worlds, which is really just one world, right? It's, I guess it's a little bit of a, a cope to try to say it's two separate worlds. They're not. They're, they're totally integrated. Um, because that's what slavery was. It wasn't a Jim Crow system. There wasn't segregation. There was a very intimate connection between blacks and whites under slavery. So anyways, this is a great story in chapter two, though. We are introduced to George, who is uh, also mulatto, which, um, of course, means Harry is as well. And he he was working at a factory, so he's being loaned out. So we're reminded that in border states, it was very common for slaves to be lent out to factories or to for day labor or other kinds of jobs like this. George is one of those, but he actually like innovated something. So a couple stories here. One is his innovation. Well, basically, his innovation is is seen as laziness. So something that's praised among whites you know, innovating a labor-saving technology is immediately just chalked up to laziness when it's done by a black person, you know. But more so is like you get the sense that this technology will just be used by the factory anyways, but they want to claim proprietary ownership of it, so they they basically fire him, send him back, and make him do really horrible, like, shit work um, on the fields and stuff. So he loses his relatively privileged position of being an, an outworker in a factory where, of course, he didn't get wages. He's still a slave, but he, he's not working on the fields. But he loses that position because he invents something which was useful for the factory and would have made the factory more productive. Um, so basically, we get the background of, of George here. It's a really, really interesting story. Um, 
We also learned that uh, George and Eliza had two like children who died young, so Eliza is super, super attached to Harry, and we're told several times that he never leaves her side. Chapter three. Um, George goes to see Eliza. She he works on another farm. He's 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 owned by someone on another farm, I should say, and. He goes to seek her out, and basically he says, after this latest insult, I can no longer work in this farm. I must leave. Um, Eliza, though, again, we have a woman being trying to be the moral voice, defending the family, saying, you, you got to stay. Um, the Christian thing to do is to stay. Um, you know, God will protect you. But George says, wait, there's, it's worse. You, you don't understand the full picture is that... Um, Master doesn't like me hanging out with you, wants me to marry a, a woman on that plantation, help tie me to that, or on that farm. And Eliza says, well, we're married. He must know that. And George's like, fool woman. This is ex exposition for the audience, of course. But fool woman, don't you understand? You know, slaves aren't, marriages aren't recognized. And he can make me sleep with her, you know, and, and have kids with her or whatever. And... And that's why I have to run away, right? So he's put in a position where he has to either have to, he has to essentially cheat on his wife or abandon his family, right? So Eliza is trying, like, have faith in God. And he's saying, like, this system does not allow me to be a man, like the, the male figure. So again, like, family is so key to the way the story is told here. Um, it's, it's, we're constantly being reminded of that. Um, chapter four is really interesting because it's our first look at the titular Uncle Tom's cabin. Um, since he gets sold off, I don't know if if we keep come ever come back to Uncle Tom's cabin, but um, he's interacting with Master George, who is Shelby's son, and Master George is trying to teach Uncle Tom how to read. Uh, they're playing with um, with letters. Um, and they're having just a nice scene where they're eating and, and making pies and things like this. Um, but at the same time, we get a simultaneous flash between what's going on in the big house versus what's going on in Uncle Tom's uh, cabin. And the, in the big house, we're told that Shelby has agreed with, um, what's his name, Haley, that he's going to sell the two um, slaves. Tom and then Eliza's son, Harry. Um, but he says, like, be kind to them. Don't be cruel to them. Th these, are, these are futile promises. These are, it's ridiculous to think he's going to uphold any of these promises, whether it's, you know, to... They're being sold down the river. They're, they're going to be sold down to New Orleans for the highest price to be sent off to a cotton plantation. That's their fate. Um, in Chapter 5... Uh, we have this epic scene where Mrs. Shelby confronts Mr. Shelby about the sale, and she basically stands on her, her soapbox. Maybe it's a bit hypocritical. Um, I don't know. I don't think that's Stowe's intention. I think she really wants to show that women are the defenders of family. Um, and at least in the first 100 pages, it's always women who stand up to these men on the principles of 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 like a moral suasion kind of argument that this is our, you know, this is our realm, you know, in the separate spheres idea. You have business, yes, but we're the defenders of, of family. 
and you must not sell the two slaves. Uh, Shelby, though, says, like, we don't have a choice. We're going to lose the farm. Uh, it's either these slaves or we're just going to lose everything. Uh, I'm, my, my, my debts are too high. I don't think we could hear why he's in debt. It doesn't really matter. But ultimately, Shelby says what she's probably obviously been sitting on her hands about for a while and saying, like, slavery is a sin. Now, of course, she's lived her life, you know, the way it, she's lived it because of slave labor to some degree, but she comes away from this concluding that slavery is, is an evil, right? Now, again, Eliza overhears all this because she's a house slave, so she's listening in. And when she realizes that Harry's going to be sold, she um, meets with Tom. Um, Tom, again, this is the, 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 the stereotype of, this, of the submissive slave here. I don't think it's fully earned, but he does agree to be sold. He, he goes along with it. He's not going to try to run away. But Eliza says, I will run away. I will have to go to Canada. It's the only way to save my, my family. So I think at this point we have a good idea, pretty good idea of, of what kind of book we have. Um, so, um, so the next chapter, chapter 6, is uh, I think that's the one where Eliza... Runs away, yeah. She, I think Mrs. Shelby rings for her. She doesn't show up. She realizes that she, she's already run away. And the kind of the troops are organized for the trackdown, for the, the for the hunt for for poor Eliza. And Haley is is who has the most to gain from this sale. Uh, he sees dollar signs in his eyes, so he. Um, he's going to be the one who rides in pursuit of Liza. He's the real villain. And, and so we get this nice scene, not in this chapter, in the next one, where we have him running down Eliza, and Eliza has to run across this, uh, this icy river where the ice is broken up and she has to bounce from, from piece of ice to piece of ice. Um, now, there's a cool little detail here where the slaves sort of try to slow down Haley in the way they prepare the horse and everything. Um, and and kind of warn him, don't ride the horse too fast. They're, they're probably, they're, they're trying to give Eliza the best chance that she has to get away. Um, uh, Haley's thrown off his horse because of what the slaves did. They, they you know, they play a little trick on him. Um, and all, this chapter is, is a little bit more comical um, in a way because we see Haley kind of falling on his, his butt and, and not really achieving his goal as he's, it's like one of those anxiety dreams where you can't ever make any progress uh, in, in your goal. That's where he's at. And it, it does it is a little bit humorous, despite the high stakes we have, because it's going to get more intense in the next chapter. Uh, and that's what we have in Chapter 7. Um, we, we see the escape then from Eliza's point of view. Um, and mostly we get her internal monologue is just one of terror, of fear, of anxiety over um what's going to happen to her and her, her child. It's literally called The Mother's Struggle, this chapter. This is maybe that, that the most famous chapter in the, in the book. It comes pretty early. Do, do people even read the rest of the book? I don't know. Um, but here, here's a taste of it. Her husband's sufferings and dangers and the dangers of her child all blended in her mind with a confused and stunning sense of the risk she was running in leaving the only home she had ever known and cutting loose from the protection of a friend whom she loved and revered. 
Then there were the parting of every familiar object, the place where she had grown up, the trees under which she had played, the groves where she had walked many an evening and happier days by the side of her young husband. Everything, as it lay in her clear, frosty starlight, seemed to speak reproachfully to her and asked her to wither, where, wither she could go from a home like that. Um, emphasizing her courage and her willingness to sacrifice everything for her family and, and you know, and she, she commits herself to, through prayer to God um, as well in this chapter. Now, since it's springtime, they, she comes to the river. Meanwhile, like Haley's finally catching up to her. Um, so we get kind of, we get from different points of view. So first we see Eliza come to the river, realizing she can't cross, right? Realizing the danger of trying to cross springtime ice. Then we get uh, back to Shel- Shelby's farm's point of view where we get Haley. Haley's finally off on his horse, chases down Eliza, and then this forces Eliza to uh, leap across the river, going from one piece of ice to another piece of ice. Uh, her feet get caught, her feet are damaged by this, but she's able to make it, all right? This is her motherly sacrifice, her faith in God uh, fulfilled. Um, so there's a lot of like religious and motherly thematics going on here. Like, I don't want to say this is a feminist text. It's, it's not really, it's really rooted in separate spheres. It's no, like Catherine Beecher, her sister, wrote the book on domestic economy, which was like the, clearly a big part of the domesticity narrative of the time. But certainly we have women, when they, when they do stand up, they do so from the perspective of religion and family. Um, that's... That's, that's so far anyways. We'll see where it goes. Um, women are crucial, though, to this book. I don't want to say it's feminist, but I do think women are central to this narrative in many, many ways. Um, now, when she gets across, she meets uh, a Mr. Symes, who uh, is just a farmer. He's, he, I think he might have slaves himself, but he's kind of like, uh, whatever, I'll help this, this runaway. He, she, he knows she's a runaway. Uh, then we get chapter eight, which is a really, really brutal chapter, actually, because uh, Haley returns home or returns back, not to home, but to the Shelby town and goes to a bar. And there he recruits up like slave hunters. And it's really, really nasty because we find people here who are worse than Haley. Um, this Tom Loker is, and this other guy, um, uh, Marks, I think they, they work together. And they're like even like you can they they hunt slaves just for the like the profit motive right, and Haley's like trying to negotiate with them and he's and he's like well if they're like well we're gonna hunt her down anyways and if you don't like the price we're offering you, then we'll just take her we don't have to give you anything, and so Haley is forced to accept their terms. These are really really bad bad dudes here. Um, the way they're presented, um, obviously, I think in Stowe's mind, these these are the lowest, the dredges of humanity here, right? People who make their living, not just buying and selling slaves, but actually tracking down runaway slaves, hunting them down like dogs for the slave traders. They're even worse, uh, almost, but they're both pretty bad. So we got this whole chapter where in the tavern with these, this scum of the earth types, and it is kind of, and you see them scamming each other. The whole dialogue, and, and I think I want to praise here Stowe's use of, of, of diction here, that she, 
she's very attentive, and you especially see this when you listen to the audiobook version. And I, I got a professionally uh, produced one, you know, where the you know Shelby talks one way, but Haley talks much in a much more vulgar way, much more earthy way. Um, and of course, uh, like poor white uh, Southern dialects are actually very close to African American dialects, so. Haley actually talks closer to how the black uh, characters talk um, than compared to like Shelby or or the senator, Senator Byrd. They have a more formal, uh, you know, proper English, quote unquote proper. So it's really kind of interesting the way she uses language here. She's pretty attentive to it. It's not like what you're going to get with the Harlem Renaissance writers who really get excel at writing in in kind of Southern dialect. But you can tell she's she puts a lot of thought into how she presents these characters. But anyways, these guys at the tavern, they're all like super vulgar and, and based in how they're presented here. Um, again, we have people like overhearing the story and bringing back the me- like the message to others. That's happened like three times in 100 pages. Um, it's, it's I don't know if it's a cliche at the time, but whatever. Um, then we got chapter nine where uh, that guy who picked up Eliza and Harry take her to take them to the Senator Bird's house and he's an interesting guy so he's he's well, they're in Ohio so they're across the river already so she's made it across um, but the fugitive slave law is in effect and Ohio has just passed their own kind of state version of the fugitive slave law because the 1850 fugitive slave law was national law but states still pass their own versions of those laws um, sometimes in protest of, of the national one, but often just enforcing it uh, under local state law. And she and Bird signed it. And so we, again, we get like a, the wife criticizing the man for choices about slavery. So we almost get a, not a word for word repeat, but thematically very, very similar conversation that we had with Shelby um, and his wife, where it was like, oh, slavery's all wrong. I've come to the conclusion slavery's wrong. And how dare you, husband, support it in the way you do? Same thing here with um, with Senator Byrd and his wife. Um, and then Eliza and Harry show up. Uh, Mr. Smines brought them there, and and he helps um, bring them to like some underground road kind of connects, um, and gives her some money. And that that's how Chapter Nine ends. So that takes us about. Uh, a 20% of the way through the book. I think it's a really, really wonderful start. I, I'm really enjoying it. Um, I'm not big on kind of this, like these kind of the sentimental approach at times, but I think Stowe does it quite well here. I, I think there's a lot, uh, it's actually quite engaging. I understand why this was a bestseller. Not just that it's speaking to a population that is growing in their anti-slavery sentiment, but it's, it's actually a good read. I mean, it, it has a, a punch to it. I think the characterizations are maybe a little bit over the top, but but good. You know, it's like we when we watch movies and we see the over-top characters, we, we sometimes like that. It's, it's like not only does it make the viewing experience, you know, it's like you know that's the bad guy. You know that's the good guy. You, you kind of draw your lines in, in how you char- your characters are presented. Um, maybe overly simplified, but... That's why it's like popular mass literature here. Um, it, this is this. I don't think this is really high literature at the time. This was something a bestseller, right? 
And I think it's it's well done. Um, so it's not quite fully what I expected, actually. And um, I guess one more thing I want to say about it before I close this chap this episode out is there are moments in the narrative where there's like exposition, which read like passages from the slave narratives, where we get uh, like a a lecture, like this author is like lecturing to us briefly. It's not that distracting. Um, I don't think they're necessary from our point of view, um, especially after having read all those slave narratives. There's nothing there that's new. But for, I think Stowe feels she needs at times for her audience to like step aside, you know, go on the stage and say, look at this scene around you. It's like it's a play. Everyone freezes. She's, and Stowe steps out and says, see, this is, this is what slavery does to the family. Or this is what slavery does to uh, people's religious convictions. This is what slavery does to children. And she does that at various times in, in the book. And it, it, it's okay if you think of it that way. But, you know, to people who don't need to be convinced slavery was horrible, you, you don't really need it that much. And it doesn't add stuff we don't already know. But I think at the time it was necessary in ensuring that people did not just see this book as an adventure story or a story of love or a story of a mother and her son that actually there's there's a point here um, a moral point and there's a call to action almost so i'm excited to see how this book goes uh, i can't believe i don't really know i i knew about the ice scene i know it's about eliza running away and 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 uncle tom being sold i i know that basics of it but beyond that i don't know anything so we will see where it goes. Super exciting. So let me know what you think of Uncle Tom's Cabin. If you have any thoughts about, uh, if, if you ever read her other novels, let me know uh, what, you know, what any advice you have on how to approach those. Um, otherwise, I'll just go into them blind. So anyways, that's it for now. Uh, thanks for li listening, and I'll see you next time with part two. That'll take us through chapters, I think, up to chapter 16 or 17 of the book. So, talk to you soon. Yeah.